0: Hey, it's Curious City editor Alexandra Solomon. In 1969, there was a famous trial, the Trial of the Chicago 8, also known as the Conspiracy 8 or the Trial of the Chicago 7. The trial pitted anti-war protesters against the federal government. Eight men were accused of conspiring to incite a riot during protests that took place in Chicago during the Democratic National Convention of 1968. During the proceedings, the judge ordered the only black defendant be gagged and chained to his chair. Outside the courtroom, protesters and onlookers would gather. Some chanted to free the men. Some came with signs and posters of protest and solidarity. And we got a question about one of these posters. This one has the image of a man with his fist raised in a black power salute. And the iconic phrase, you can't jail the revolution drawn in huge capital letters, written in red ink on an off-white background. Below that it reads, Stop the Trial, Free the Conspiracy 8. Someone wanted to know who the artist was, and we thought it was a good question to look into right now. In part because many of the issues that surrounded the trial, police brutality, racism in the criminal justice system, free speech and the right to protest, those are things we're grappling with at this moment. So we put culture reporter Ariane Nettles on the case. She loves to explain history, especially history that happened right here in Chicago. So she went looking for the artist and found herself asking some other important questions about art and protest movements along the way. That's coming up.
1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race, hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
2: This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, The Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org.
3: Hey, it's Ariane. Okay, so you heard this poster has two elements, text and image. The text says, you can't jail the revolution. And the image is of a raised fist in a black power salute. So remember that. I'm going to try to find the artist, but first I'm going to go back over a little of the history of the trial because you can't understand the poster without it. And later, I'm going to take a look at the intersection of art and protest movements, how images become a part of these movements and move people to action. Okay, nineteen sixty-eight, the year before the trial, was a tumultuous one. And honestly, that's putting it lightly. In March, then Democratic president Lyndon B. Johnson pulled out of his re-election campaign. The Vietnam War was his major initiative, and the anti-war movement was building strength.
2: But this movement is important for what it fights for. Us.
3: Over twenty thousand American soldiers had died in April.
1: Good evening, Dr. Martin Luther King.
3: Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated.
1: The apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee, and that they caused
3: anger and hurt a across the nation and really the, the world. Also... And in June, Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated.
4: Major D reported that. Senator
3: Kennedy had been shot. So tensions were already extremely high in August when the Democratic Party held its national convention in Chicago. Anti war activists saw the event as the perfect spotlight to hold their protests. The mayor at the time, Richard J. Daley, wanted a heavy law enforcement presence. He already had a combined force of 20,000 Chicago police officers, federal agents, and federal soldiers. When he requested another 5,600 Illinois National Guardsmen. Law enforcement then met protesters with violence in a scene that looked eerily similar to today's protests against police killings.
2: In the heat of emotion and riot, some ple- policemen may have overacted, but to judge the entire police department.
3: An important note here a report by the U.S. National Commission on the Causes and Prevention of Violence says that police did, in fact, cause the violence during these protests.
2: But they will never permit a lawless, violent group of terrorists to menace the lives of millions of people, destroy the purpose of this national convention, and take over the streets of Chicago.
3: By the end of 1968, the Democrats had just lost the presidential election. The following year, the new administration under Republican President Nixon, decided to prosecute eight individuals involved in the Chicago protests for conspiring to incite a riot, even though the charges against them were unfounded.
1: And they also were prosecuted under a brand new law, which had been passed specifically against Black radicals crossing state lines to, quote, incite a riot.
3: Historian John Weiner is the author of Conspiracy in the Streets, the extraordinary trial of the Chicago 8. The Chicago 8 he's referring to are the men referenced in our poster in the phrase, stop the trial,
1: free the conspiracy 8. No one had ever been indicted or charged or tried under this law before. So the whole thing was unexpected, new, and no one knew how these charges would go over.
3: Weiner says the demonstrations were actually organized by different groups of white radicals, the cultural radicals of the Yippie Party and the more traditional left-wing anti-war groups. Bobby Seale, the national chairman of the Black Panther Party, had nothing to do with organizing the protests. The Nixon administration charged Seale as one of the defendants anyway, even though he was only in Chicago for four hours. He gave one speech that day and then turned around and went home.
1: It seems like the only reason the Nixon administration brought Bobby Seale into the trial was to have a scary black man who might influence the jury. Otherwise, he certainly had nothing to do with it. And of course, he was so horribly mistreated during the trial that eventually he was severed anyway, and, and there ended up being seven instead of eight.
3: And that brings us to the other phrase in our poster, you can't jail the revolution. Is from a famous speech by Fred Hampton, who was chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s. In the speech, Hampton is talking about Bobby Seale being on trial. Bobby
1: Seale is going through all types of physical and mental torture, but that's all right because we said even before this happened, and we're going to say it after this, and after I'm locked up, and after everybody's locked up, that you can jail.
3: Knowing all this history, my first thought was to reach out to the Black Panther Party to see if anyone there could tell me about the poster's artist. I asked a group of Black archivists called the Blackivists to ask them on my behalf. Neither group had any idea about who the artist might be. My next move was to hit up some archival collections. I looked up other posters with the phrase, You can't jail the revolution. It appeared on a lot of posters from that time period, and I saw a very popular one created by an artist named Emery Douglas. He is an activist who was responsible for guiding the Panthers' visuals for decades. He oversaw the party's newspaper from 1967 until it ended production in 1980 and is known for his bold graphic illustrations. The Black Panther newspaper was known for having posters on the front and back covers. So I thought Douglas might have been the artist. Colette Gator is a professor of Africana Studies and Art and Design at the University of Delaware. She says Emory Douglas's work was key to putting the very people the party wanted to liberate front and center. He was the Norman Rockwell
4: of the ghetto. He was showing people, Americans, who had been forgotten and were suffering because of all of the systemic problems, low wages, poor health care, police brutality, etc.
3: But I soon realized there are some reasons why the poster we were researching wasn't the work of the famed Emery Douglas. First, our poster didn't really match his artistic style. His posters often had thick, bold black lines and were a mix of illustration and collage. Versions of the poster we were looking at generally had one or two colors max. Secondly, Douglas's posters generally had the logo of the Black Panther Party on them. On his You Can't Jail the Revolution poster, next to the logo, there's the phone number and address of the Black Panther Party's Chicago headquarters, 2350 West Madison Street. The address on our poster was different. It says 28 East Jackson. That's about three and a half miles away from the Panther Chicago headquarters. It was Jason Nargis who cracked the code. He's a Northwestern Special Collections librarian, and he dug into the archives for me.
5: Eventually, I came upon a letter to the editor from 1969 in the New York Review of Books And there's a group that they call themselves uh, the Committee to Defend the Conspiracy. And that group included some prominent writers and intellectuals, Norman Mailer, Noam Chomsky, Dr. Spock, Susan Sontag, some really noticeable names. And so they wrote this sort of call saying that the anti riot Act, which is what they were using as justification for the trial, was was un-American and unconstitutional. And they called for support And if you wanted to make donations, that is the address that they gave.
3: So Nargis was able to successfully trace the address back to this group of activists who commissioned it. And he found an archival collection at the University of Michigan that had one of these posters.
5: I saw that in 2008, the curator, Julie Harada, put together an exhibit for the 40th anniversary of 1968 because that was such a, you know, tumultuous, pivotal in one time in the 60s in, in the country's history. And she is quoted as saying that this poster is her favorite thing in the collection.
3: So I reached out to Julie Harada, curator of that collection. And while she couldn't tell me who the artist was behind the poster, she said something that really changed my perspective on what is actually depicted in it. I spent so much time focused on the words by Fred Hampton that I didn't realize the image I was staring directly at. So the
6: graphic image of the man holding his fist up is the image of Tommy Smith, along with John Carlos. Those two won um, the Olympics in 1968. They're both American athletes and both African-American When they were standing on the podium in Mexico City to receive their medals, they held up their fists.
5: The right glove that I wore on my right hand signified the power within Black America. The left glove my teammate John Carlos wore on his left hand made an art. My right hand to his left hand also signified Black unity.
6: And so that's what that image is. And that image was very iconic and very, very powerful to a lot of leftist radicals at that time.
3: And like Harada reminded me, it's even more powerful because they both were stripped of their medals because of this gesture. So it was a huge sacrifice to make that statement. It's also important to note that the Olympics were also held in 1968. Remember, very tumultuous year.
6: And I love the fact that We don't know who the artist is because that means to me that the artist didn't care about themselves. They were just trying to send this message out.
3: I understood what Julie Harada was saying. It was clear I probably wasn't going to find the exact artist who created the poster for the committee to defend the conspiracy. The artist didn't sign it. None of the leads I tried had panned out. But the message was important at the time, especially to the many who showed up outside the trial every day, that the eight men were innocent, that they were being accused of a made-up crime, that the, quote, conspiracy eight should not be on trial. It was clear at the time that the entire trial was an injustice, and this poster was a way for people who believed in their innocence to show that, using the words and imagery that inspired them. And that made me think about how important art is to protest, about how it's a powerful tool in sharing messages, garnering support, and motivating people to take action. I'll get to all of that next.
2: Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at afsp.org slash talkawaythedark. Our
4: lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. matter.
2: Every
3: protest movement has an image. And these images have power, power to move people to take action. They can also help people feel a sense of belonging to a protest movement. When I think about the start of Black Lives Matter in 2013, I immediately picture the bold words on an all-Black background, letting the words speak for themselves. Then, after police killed Eric Garner in 2014, there was a new sign. I can't breathe, the last words he spoke as officers pinned him down on the ground.
6: We can't breathe! We can't breathe! We can't breathe! We can't breathe! breathe. breathe.
3: And even going back to 1968, when I think about striking sanitation workers in Memphis demanding higher wages and safer working conditions, I think about the iconic I am a man signs. The red letters are all uppercase and placed on a white background. The word am is underlined and emphasized. These images were on my mind as we talked about Olympians Tommy Smith and John Carlos and the iconic image of them on that podium with their arms raised, fists up. So I wanted to understand more about how that image has been used. It turns out it's been a large part of many movements, even before it was known as a Black Power salute. Colette Gator, the University of Delaware professor, says the gesture has grown to be a universal sign. In the 1910s, it was used as part of the labor movement and was first used in 1912 by a crowd of striking workers in Budapest, Hungary.
4: Well, I have done research into the Raised Fist. The Raised Fist was started by workers and it was started by white people, the Raised Fist. Yeah. And it is a universal symbol of resistance.
3: So I don't think anybody can claim ownership to that. She says how we influence each other is a testament to how art can be shared by people who have similar goals. The other thing to keep in mind
4: is our current ideas about appropriation and copyright, they are contemporary because back in the day, like in the 60s, there were a lot of underground newspapers and a lot of them borrowed art from each other. For example, Emery Douglas made posters that were appropriated by Cuban poster artists. I
3: believe they credited him. But they used his artwork. And especially at that time, adapting art to spread key messages aligned with what the Panthers were doing and what the resistance movement was all about. I think that
4: at that time, the idea was we're all in solidarity in this international liberation movement and we can share images. We can share what we need to share to make our point.
3: That's what Smith and Carlos did at the 1968 Olympics when they raised their fists. And like curator Michael Rooks explains, that image has been adapted again for what's happening today. Rooks worked with Smith and artist Glenn Kino for their exhibition, With Arms Drawn. This was an exhibition about Smith's gesture at the 1968 Olympics and includes sculptural installations like one created out of a cast of his arm raised in a fist.
7: Glenn is really interested in taking a deep dive on what that gesture meant at that moment, where it came from and how it means today, how it, it functions today. And it functions in Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and for athletes across the world doing the same thing. It's not a a raised fist in this case, but it's the same, means the same thing, and it comes from the same place.
3: And it's something so powerful that it continues to take shape in different ways.
7: So the amorphousness of images and symbols that have urgent meaning and messages to so many people are powerful things that are fascinating, I think, to people interested in visual and material culture.
3: Glenn Kino, the artist who worked with Smith, says what made this exhibit unique was the fact that he had the chance to work with him, because artists don't always get to collaborate with those who've inspired them.
7: A lot of artists have mine, both the iconography, sometimes the words, sometimes the scholarship of our cultural heroes oftentimes with obviously crediting them because it's, it's it's very transparent and obvious that they're citing these people. But then if you go back and look in terms of what the actual partnerships were, you know, you say, well, the person who sacrificed to go make that original source material didn't really participate in the remuneration or any of the benefit that the artist might have gotten for themselves throughout the course of making their art, you know? And I didn't want to do that at all.
3: One very interesting thing that Kaino brought up was how protests themselves they are a work of art
7: for me all of like the protests generally speaking is a form of you know symbolic storytelling right like people mass on the streets and demonstrate their ideas about how the world needs to change and they use sometimes large scale performances like gatherings and marches to assemble to create these images of representation in ways that sometimes have the ability to communicate at a larger scale.
3: And when Kino said this, I understood what he meant. Looking back at people in the 60s collectively marching together with their arms raised, it's always moved me to feel Black and powerful. In 2013, when I first saw large masses of people take the streets together to demand that Black lives, lives like mine, do matter, it was just as moving. And since then, it's hard not to be moved when we see people coming together again and again. We've seen this throughout history. People on the street holding signs and banners, chanting, marching to push for social change. Protests and art are still deeply connected. They might even be one in the same.
0: Thanks so much to Ariane Nettles for her reporting for this week's episode. Now, you know something else about Ariane? I happen to know, aside from being an amazing reporter, she also loves to run. And me, while I used to love to run, now I'm more of a fast walker, you know, injuries and stuff. But both Ariane and I are in luck because Curious City is putting on a 5K in May, and it's uh, choose-your-own-adventure style here's how it works. It's a virtual run. What does that mean? It means during the entire month of May, you, dear listener, can choose a Chicago neighborhood and create a route based around a curious city story. It's a chance to get out, exercise, and explore a part of the city you don't know. There is plenty of swag. There are medals and challenges that you can take part in. And of course, it's going to be fun. To register or learn more, go to wbez.org/5k. That's wbez.org/5k. Today's episode was reported by Ariane Nettles, lecturer at Northwestern University. Curious City is produced by Joe Dassault and Stephen Jackson. Monica Eng is our reporter. Maggie Civit is the digital and engagement producer for the team. And Natalie Dahlia is our intern. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Alexandra Solomon. Go register for the race.